what the hell is a curate? In the Episcopal Church, we, you need a dictionary to get through half the conversations you have, especially if you're new coming to it. So uh, what is a curate? Like this is the thing y'all are doing. And welcome to And Also With Y'all podcast. This is the Reverend James Franklin here with me is our co one of our co-hosts. Eliza is not with us today, uh, but with us is Caleb. Hello, I'm the Reverend Caleb Tabor from the uh, Episcopal Campus Ministry and Young Adult Ministry in Raleigh. So glad y'all are tuning in for this episode. We, for the next two episodes, are recording conversations with curates. Curate. Curates. Yeah. For damage, they'll cure it. Mm. What are they curating in their in their space? Yes. We're we're talking with three folks and they're they're in a unique program. And so we wanted to check in with them and see what life was like for them. One of the things I really loved about uh, our conversation in this episode with Amanda and Philip is this image came up in my mind of when I was first ordained and I was serving in a parish in Wilmington, North Carolina. And two weeks into the job, I, I kid you not, someone, a, a woman came in and she was really distraught and she said, you know, what do we have to, what do I have to do for an exorcism? Oh no. <laughs> and okay. I was just like, oh God, like, you know, seminary did not prepare me for this. Like, what am yeah. I doing? You know, I, I'm, I am just a, I, I wasn't a priest yet. I was still a deacon. And it, it was, I had this freak out moment of, I am so not trained for this. You know, it's just, I am not prepared for anything. And long story short, I mean, you know, obviously I didn't, I ended up not, I didn't do it exorcism. Oh, clearly. Yeah. But always, we always refer them to a specialist on that we one. Do. Yeah. We do. We do. Um, called bishops and 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 even then they're you know they have to get special permission. It's crazy. It's still a thing. But yeah. but uh, what I heard in their conversation was that this program that they're in allows for a really diverse training in yeah. in becoming a priest. It was it was something that I'm 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 envious of. Yeah. And it was I, I, yeah. I wish I wish I'd had something like that. And because it gave a lot of grace, I yeah. think to the understanding, uh, especially from everyone that they are ministering to, that this is someone who is still learning this craft, you know, approach them with, as you were learning about this thing, um, yeah. I, you know, I have this question, you know? Yeah, I, yeah I love that, I love the, and I loved how like open they were to like the different experiences that come with a kind of apprenticeship, which is sort of what like the curacy is, right? So. Mm, I um, love that. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of felt a little envious too, because I didn't really get that apart from my um, like seminary internships. And so, but the, the minute you're ordained, it, like the, it changes a little bit. And so, I mean, like I said in there before I was a, or, or as I said in the episode, I was a transitional deacon and then I was made the vicar of a congress. So I was like, we were hiring people to come in and celebrate communion even after they hired me as the minister in charge. Yeah, yeah, so, so weird. Um, yeah, I think it's really cool. I think it's yeah. gonna be really beneficial for them in their vocations. And I think the extension of that is gonna be really beneficial for whatever congregations or, or, or people that they end up serving in the future. So yeah, no, I just thought it was really fantastic. Yeah, it's not quite so abrupt as, um, yeah, here's swim in the deep end. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, no, being look, and they're learning. And they're learning right now when things are like totally nuts. So like, they'll be ready. Like, yeah, 
you know? Yeah, they 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 will be totally um, resilient and prepared for for whatever uh, yeah, life or the church or organized yeah. religion has to throw at them. Yeah. So, well, without further ado, here is Philip and Amanda. Um, so my name is Amanda Bourne, and I am currently a transitional deacon from the Diocese of Virginia, serving in the Diocese of North Carolina through the Reimagining Curacies program. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the program later, but I am beginning my time of service at the Chapel of the Cross, Chapel Hill. And I'm Philip Zoutendam. I'm also a transitional deacon um, all the way from the Diocese of Western Michigan, and I'm serving also in the Reimagining Curacies program this year, I'm at St. Titus in Durham. And then next year, I, I kind of rotate over to Chapel of the Cross, where Amanda is now. Do you you come you come back my way next year, Amanda? That's your third I, year. I'm, okay. I'm going to be at St. John's next year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I didn't realize that they moved you around as part of the of this program, which we should uh, explain. We And I'll let you all explain, because I'm not even 100% sure. Um, like who it's funded by and 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 what happened. I remember when the diocese was applying for the grant, and we have three actually recipients of the of the grant and uh, three placements. And uh, and so maybe you just want to talk a little bit about the program, about what it is. So the the reimagining curacies program uh, is in its first year. So uh, Amanda and Mawetu, whom you'll interview later, I think, and I are all the guinea pigs in a sense. Um, grateful guinea pigs, I would say. But it's a Lilly Grant-funded program that's meant to kind of explore new ways for forming new clergy in, in the Episcopal Church. So the most obviously reimagined thing is that we don't stay in one place for the whole curacy. Um, we, we move around a little bit, which I guess we've uh, already kind of divulged. Yeah, um, it, I'll just sort of say like, so the basic idea is three parishes, three curates, three years. Um, so we are rotating through uh, all three parishes. So not only do three parishes get three new clerical voices, um, but we get to experience three different kinds of parishes. Um, and the parishes that are currently in the program are the Chapel of the Cross, Chapel Hill, and then St. John's Wake Forest, and then St. Titus Durham. Um, so they're all parishes that are actually really, really different. So it gives us as curates a different experience of the Episcopal Church in each of those places. Um, we'll, we'll each have different roles and responsibilities. So it's a, it's a great way of learning, but we also have three supervisors who we will keep in touch with over the three years. Um, so it means we also have a really strong support system, which I think is really, really helpful for forming new clergy. I'm a little envious of y'all actually that you get to experience the, I think maybe some of the freedom and some of the experiences and maybe roundedness that you might get from being in three different places uh, with three different mentors, three different you know supervisors and and I, I'm really excited for y'all and for the places that you serve. I think that's really cool. I also think uh, uh, knowing what I know about, um, you know, my Methodist friends who've been through the process that I, I think it's funny we called it reimagining when this is basically just what Methodists do. They just move people around all the time. But yeah, so reimagine. There we go. Well, we've got some, we've got a couple questions for y'all. And I wanted to start with one that's a little more just background on on who you are and how you came to be here and also how you came to be 
uh, clergy. Uh, so maybe a little bit of your call in that story. Um, but if you, each of you just take a minute and um, reflect upon, you know, what, what is the spiritual landscape of your life um, and, and what brought you here? Uh, that's a huge question, you know, so if you can <laughs> try and distill it down into, you know, about five or 10 minutes, that'd be great. So yeah, so I was, I was born in Maryland. I grew up on a family farm, um, which is pretty unusual. I'm cradle Episcopalian, so I actually grew up in the Episcopal church, going to church all the time. Um, my dad, as a layperson, at various points worked as a youth and family minister at the church, and my family was really, really active in a tiny church, which basically meant I was at church all the time. So I sort of like to refer to my upbringing as sort of a preacher's kid experience without my dad actually having been ordained. So, um, but yeah, so preachers, uh, sort of that PK experience. So I, that meant I was really connected to the church, really loved it growing up, always sort of thought of it as being a part of my life and that it would continue to be so in the future. So when I went to college, I sort of continued to look at churches, uh, figure out sort of ways to continue to be involved. Um, I grew up in the pretty um, conservative wing of the Episcopal Church. So when I went to college, I actually um, went to one of the Acna parishes in Northern Virginia for a couple of years. Um, and sort of that was that was a really big time of spiritual growth for me. So I was an English major at a small liberal arts college. I, I see Philip, you know, we're doing the go English major cheer. You can't you can't see us, but you know, it's happening. So, yeah, so it was sort of the semester when I was taking lit theory and sort of doing all this critical thinking when I had this realization, like, man, like, I, I know what church I go to, sort of, like, as as a church nerd growing up, I knew probably way too much about the politics of the Episcopal Church. And so I realized at that point early on in college that, man, I actually really, you know, thought it was important to include LGBTQ people in the church. Um, I thought it was really, really important to ordain women um, and sort of some things that were either really unclear or explicitly sort of framed as bad in context where I grew up and where I was currently going. So I stopped going to church for a little bit. And as a college student, I think I realized that I really, really missed community. And that it was community that brought me back to church and it brought me back to the Episcopal church, the sort of more liberal side of the Episcopal church. Um, there was one right across the street from my college and that St. Mary's Arlington is the parish that ended up being my sending parish. So I actually, it was a really quick journey actually into discernment. So I pretty much got there, started volunteering, started an internship, started discernment within the space of maybe a year and a half. Um, so it was a pretty quick transition. Um, I did my formal discernment through a program in the Diocese of Virginia, which is pretty exciting, called the Young Priest Initiative. So it's a discernment model that is really interested in supporting young people in discerning vocations in the church. And even though it's called the Young Priest Initiative, um, it's for anyone discerning vocations. So a lot of people actually discern the laity in that program or even discern uh, the diaconate um, as well as the priesthood. So the name is a little bit deceptive, but the idea is that you don't have to have a parish in order to discern. 
So you don't have to have that initial committee and be super well connected at a parish level. Um, instead, you get together with your peers who are also discerning at a diocesan level um, and a group of mentors. And you sort of walk through about two years, including a vocational internship to sort of figure out, hey, is this really something that you wanna do? And so I went through that program and by the time I finished college, I was like, hey, yeah, this is something I really want to do. So after I did that initial sort of vocational internship, I needed another year to go through my postulancy process. And so I spent a year in the Episcopal Service Corps. Um, I spent a year at the Society of St. John the Evangelist in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I think a number of you all will know about. They are the fabulous folks who are behind Brother Give Us a Word, which is a daily email of wonderful wisdom that can arrive in your inbox. So I spent nine months as an intern there, pretty much doing anything you might expect that a monastery that has a guest house would require you to do, from helping in the sacristy, to cooking in the kitchen, to uh, helping to make beds. It was a really, really rich year. And then after that year, I went to seminary. So I went to seminary at Virginia Theological Seminary. There's an old saying that Virginia goes to Virginia, and that in my case was very, very true. I had a great three years at VTS. I can't say enough good things about my time there. As I was in discernment at VTS about what I wanted to do next, and I was sort of looking at jobs in my final year, I saw the listing for reimagining curacies. And one of the things that really, really jumped out at me sort of was connected to my experience in the Young Priest Initiative. Um, and I think it's really, really important for the diocese or diocese in the Episcopal Church to take leadership on forming young priests or forming clergy sort of in a way that I think has often been relegated to a parish model. And so one of the things that was really exciting to me about the Reimagining Curacies program was in fact that it was sort of initiated by the diocese. Um, in fact, Philip and Moetu and I are actually employees of the diocese. Technically, we're not employees of these individual parishes. And so I'm really excited to be part of this program that is really interested in how, how we form young clergy from a diocesan level. So that was, I think, one of the major attractions of the program for me. Oh, thank you so much, Amanda. Uh, Amanda, where did you go to college? Uh, I meant to ask, where did you uh, where did you go to undergrad? Yeah, I went to Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. Super tiny uh, Roman Catholic liberal arts school. Nice. Um, and I was an English major and theology and religious studies minor. All right. So let, wait, so let's recap here just real quick. Cradle Episcopalian, went to a Catholic college, took a little brief uh, stint in ACNA <laughs> during college, <laughs> and did service corps, uh, the Young Priest Initiative. Um, yeah. And then, and then went say, to Society of St. John the Evangelist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, your, your credentials, you'll be Archbishop of Canterbury in five years. <laughs> I mean, I don't know when is well be out. Like, <laughs> look, don't forget us who knew you before. You know what I mean? Here you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure a female Archbishop of Canterbury is happening in any of our lifetimes, but you know, we shall see. We shall see. Start the revolution. Philip, how about you? So I, um, uh, was not a cradle Episcopalian. I grew up Southern Baptist. 
which is about as different as you can get from the Episcopal Church and still be Protestant, I guess, but is actually not uncommon among young Episcopalians and young clergy. So I, I didn't go to an Episcopal seminary. I went to Duke and was part of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies, which is its own, you know, unique little thing. But I actually found that I could assume that the other people training to become Episcopal clergy at Duke also were raised Southern Baptist. And I think that was true more than half the time. So my, my story is going to be pretty different from Amanda's, but I think it's not an uncommon story, which is, which is pretty interesting. I very much grew up in the church. My parents are Northern, but they happen to live in East Texas. And they're kind of uh, generally evangelical, but the way things work in East Texas is you're probably going to end up at a Southern Baptist church because there's kind of one on every corner. So, you know, unpredictably, that's where they ended up. And that's how I was raised. So really kind of Bible-centric denomination, lots of emphasis on uh, lay leadership um, and young leadership. So, you know, I was really involved in youth group and Bible studies and summer camp and things like that. But I went off to college in this tiny college in, in Southern Michigan. And the way we joke about it is, you know, if you really want to tick your parents off from most colleges, you come home atheist. Well, the way you do it at our college is you would come home Catholic. Just really interesting little school, incredibly ecumenical, not an officially religious institution at that time, but pretty much everybody was a Christian. And because nobody was forcing you to go to chapel, you, you know, every, every day, every Tuesday, Thursday, whatever it is at, at lots of evangelical colleges, people were really engaged in their own faith tradition. And so it was just really fascinating ecumenical ferment. And people would come in and almost always leave in an older tradition than they started. So I came in Baptist, um, similar for my wife as well, um, grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And by the time we left, we were sort of proto-Anglicans, I would say. It was a really popular thing to go to the local Anglican parish um, in Hillsdale County, Michigan. And I say Anglican because it wasn't an Episcopal church. It was actually kind of one of these splinter groups that was still into the 1928 prayer book. So that was my first kind of real exposure to uh, Anglicanism. And I thought it was going to be a great fit. And we went and they just kind of blitzed through the liturgy. <laughs> Aaron, my wife now, and, and I kind of left the church and were a little shell-shocked. But, you know, we ended up in Phoenix, Arizona, right after college, teaching at a charter school. Went to an ACNA church for a couple of years. So that was also kind of our entree into, into the Anglican communion. Moved to Western Michigan uh, a couple of years after that. And we're in this really interesting period where we didn't really know what we were. We had gone to this Anglican church for a couple of years, but there was an Anglican church getting started in Western Michigan. We didn't really feel like we could be part of this church plant, not even knowing like how attached are we to this Anglicanism thing. But eventually we're like, I guess we'll try an Episcopal church and found, found one that we liked. Had to had to change parishes eventually because we were driving into lake effect snow, which is a West Michigan thing you've got to deal with. Found one a little closer to home, but that's probably almost a decade ago now. And we just eventually decided we were prayer book people and, and couldn't really live without the, the BCP liturgies and the, and the weekly Eucharist. And so, you know, during that time, I was kind of dabbling in a few different careers. Um, I was also an English major. Um, good, good to see you, Amanda. So I taught English for a couple of years. Then I worked in nonprofits doing marketing and communications. Then I worked for um, a theological publisher 
I lived in Grand Rapids, which is like the Christian publishing mecca, or at least it was. Um, so I worked for Erdman's Publishing, which is a great um, family-owned publishing house. But I just found I was really antsy and really bored and really angsty about it in an office job. <laughs> so um, that's kind of what kicked off some discernment for me. And both my, my wife and my priest kind of helped suggest what I was, what I was kind of afraid of and not even that curious about, which was the priesthood. And um, I, was, I was involved in prison ministry at that time. And that was kind of the most exciting thing I had going. So I was thinking about maybe vocational diaconal work with that angle. But Aaron said, no, I think you should probably look at this for a full-time thing. And so, so I did. And as part of that um, discernment process, and at that same time, Aaron has, had gone through a couple, a couple different seminary programs, was looking at doctoral work in church history. And so Duke was a place that we could both go um, with the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies. And Aaron's working on her PhD in, uh, in church history in their religion department. So we kind of put all our eggs in that basket and said, if that doesn't work out, we're going to go teach English in France for a year and, and reconsider. But uh, here we are, it worked out. And that's how we ended up here in North Carolina. But the question that, that you sent us was about our spiritual landscape. And as I was thinking about that, I kept recognizing just how ecumenical, in a sense, my, my spiritual landscape is, having moved through a few different traditions and having lived in communities, even, even in seminary, um, since Duke is a Methodist school and my own Anglican formation was alongside people in the ACNA, um, which is not an uncontroversial thing, especially here in North Carolina. I've just, I've lived and been raised in communities where, where there's a lot of difference. Sometimes we talk about it, sometimes we don't, but whether it's spoken or unspoken, it's always forming us in a particular way. And I'm just more and more grateful for that as I go along. One of the reasons that we wanted to become Anglican and not Catholic is we just couldn't really fully divorce ourselves from our Baptist upbringing in the way that you kind of have to if you join or are received into the Catholic Church. And so I'm happy to be in a tradition where I can still, you know, invite my parents to come receive communion, whether, whether or not they will because it's alcoholic wine <laughs> and it looks really different, but I'm, I'm glad to have that potential. And that's a, a significant part of my spiritual landscape, I would say. I have a friend who, who uh, is a priest and describes himself as a theological mutt with similar upbringing and background. And, and even Amanda, like I know the, you know, you said you're kind of a cradle Episcopalian, but, you know, in college, you know, took a look at what else was out there too. So I feel like, I feel like both of you have share uh, a common thread and with, with us too, um, knowing Caleb's story and mine too, that, that we've all been, you know, we haven't just drunk the, the, the grape juice or in this case wine and just been indoctrinated and said that that or bust. And we've both kind of dabbled in, uh, in what else was out there. And I think it, I think it does help with our, our own, our spiritual landscape and that it, it helps us be a little more rounded and a little more versatile even. So thank yeah. you for those answers. Yeah, Philip, I really feel you on the family thing. I'll never forget the first time my grandparents came to uh, an Episcopal church where I was doing an internship and, and preaching that Sunday. <laughs> my grandpa took communion up at the front and then he has a hard time uh, hearing. He just goes, well, no, that ain't grape juice. But it was like really loud. <laughs> 
was like, oh, girl. Okay. Um, all right. So I have a question for you. And it, but it's really like a question with two parts. And so I think the best way to do this is to have uh, one of you take one part and one of you take the other. So Amanda, we're going to start with you. And my question is very theologically profound. It's what the hell is a curate? In the Episcopal Church, we, you need a dictionary to get through half the conversations you have, especially if you're new coming to it. So uh, what is a curate? Like this is the thing y'all are doing. I'm happy to take a stab at the first part. Um, mostly because I, I, think, I think in some ways the Episcopal Church is still figuring out what a curate is. And like I say this, I, I have a lot of friends in the UK. Um, I spent some time studying abroad there in seminary. And, you know, the English curacy system is really, really different. In the UK, everyone's a curate. You have to be a curate for two years, at least, to be licensed in the Church of England. And we just don't sort of have that in the US. So I sort of find a, a curate in the US, in theory, the idea is that you come into a parish and as an authority figure, you are teaching, but the whole idea of a curacy is also that you're being formed and that you're being taught. And it's sort of much more explicitly a training position. It is your first position and you're sort of still figuring out what your vacation vocation is in that place. And um, so yeah, a curacy is really just the start. I love the expression, uh, this again comes from the Church of England that one of my friends talks about is like, in some ways, in the Church of England, a curacy is the next part of your theological training. So you go. So maybe it's kind of like uh, it's kind of similar to like when a doctor does a residency before they become like their own thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I love I love that sort of framing of what a curacy is. Right. It's like it's your residency. It's it's your vocate. You're doing the thing but you're in a space where it's very clear that you're still learning the thing. And so I think, I think that's what, what a curacy is. Yeah. I really feel that. Um, Cause you know, I didn't have even an assistantship when I got started, I just hit the ground running. They put me, I was a vicar of a church out in Oxford. Like I was still a transitional deacon and they were like, you'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, and so the, the second part of the question uh, will be for Philip. And then Amanda, if you have any thoughts about that, we can come back to you after he says, so it's like, it's not, I'm not real strict. Otherwise I would have stayed Baptist. Right. So um, <laughs> uh, why is the the cure of souls or the care of souls important? Mm -hmm. I remember being a little bit um, put off by that phrase, that I, that idea of the cure of souls. The first time I heard it, <laughs> my first Episcopal rector was um, sort of Sewanee High Church. And he had a blog called Care for the Cure of Souls or something like that. But it certainly does reflect at least what I've seen in pretty ancient Christian texts, patristic texts that are pretty frank about the way that our souls are distorted and need to be kind of reshaped and cured even. Um, many of the ancient Christian authors are not afraid to use you know, medical language uh, about this, um, th that souls do indeed need to be cured of their maladies. And I really appreciate that honesty and frankness. And it's something that sometimes can tend to escape us or which we tend to resist as Episcopalians, as mainline Protestants. We don't like to talk about sin very much. We don't like to talk about the effects of sin or our need for redemption and salvation. I appreciate that element of it. One thing that I've also seen in some of those same patristic texts, though, is a little bit of an overemphasis on the cleric's role, the pastor's role in doing that. So you can get some of these great quotes sometimes like, 
I think it's Gregory of Nyssa who says um, the the priest's job is to is to give the soul its wings. That's kind of cute and it and it's also a little profound in one sense. But I but I deeply appreciate that the 20th century liturgical movement, our own 79 prayer book, is really insistent on that reformation emphasis on the priesthood of all believers. And so I, I think that it's important to, to say, yes, a, a priest or a deacon, a curate is, is very much responsible to and for the, the formation and the reformation of, of souls under that person's care. But it's also important to recognize that that's a, that's a partnership and it's a co-priesthood. As we're as we're all priests in the priesthood of all believers, the the image of the the priest or the pastor as as shepherd is of course really popular one, but sheep are dumb, and that's a that analogy only goes so far, right? Like I think it's really important to say yes, there's a similar responsibility, but also there's a much greater partnership as we're all in in some ways priests and have a priestly vocation in our lives. Yeah, a metaphor I use a lot is like a coach for a team, though I always have to follow that up with I know nothing about sports. But it seems like just from what I've gathered, it seems like an appropriate sort of comparison. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting aggressive nodding, which is the equivalent of saying amen in a sermon in the Episcopal Church. So thank you. Thank you, Philip. Uh, Amanda, did you want to add anything real quick to that? I think, you know, what I was thinking of with this was a little bit more of our sort of specific Anglican history around the cure of souls and sort of thinking of a cure of souls is a geographic space, which I think, you know, obviously sort of is true in, in the English sense, right, where you don't have the same sort of separation of church and state as you do in the U.S., but at least in North Carolina and uh, the rest of the sort of English colonies on the East Coast, that is also in our history, this idea of the cure of souls being a geographic location, and that sort of you're operating within a parish structure and a parish being physical bounds like a county rather than um, just a church community. And, you know, so one of the things I was thinking about with the cure of souls is about how this curacy is really interested in geographic space. So we are in the research triangle and we have three parishes in Durham, Wake Forest and Chapel Hill. Um, but we're all sort of in sort of this messy space where, like, I can guarantee that when this is a thing again, I'm going to run into parishioners from St. John's and Chapel Hill at the grocery store when I am at St. Titus. I, I think in some ways here, I think a little bit about the Reimagining Kerosies program operating in that traditional sort of cure of souls in that geographic sense. I love that. Thank you. The idea of geography and landscape and like frontiers are words that for me are really important. And as you were talking, I was getting these images of like the English country parson, you know, where, who's in charge of like an area, not just like a certain subset of people, but just like everyone, which <laughs> uh, Caleb, you know, as a campus minister, it would be really easy to get bogged down and like, I'm just going to look out for like only the Episcopal folks out here. But really, it's like you got to look out for the campus and you're not just campus minister or chaplain to a certain subset of people, but everyone. And I think it sounds like the curacy is kind of reimagining uh, what that might be in terms of, um, of a more broader expanding frontier of what it means to be a priest for a place. 
Yeah, it's it's super current. Like it's a free range, free range priesting, right? Like I love that. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no chicken coop anymore. You're just free to roam. <laughs> Next question is um, about what is an unexpected joy as as newly minted clergy. Amanda, you mentioned that you are a transitional deacon, so that might need some explaining of what that is. And people, when I when I was when I was ordained for the first time. People are like, you're a what? Like, you're wearing the collar. Are you a priest, right? And it's like, no, not yet. So um, so I'm happy to expand a little bit on what a transitional deacon is. So in the Episcopal Church, you do not go straight into being a priest. You cannot be ordained directly into the priesthood. Um, we have this idea that deacons are a really, really important part of our ministry and our life, and that the call to the diaconate is actually one that every ordained clergy person shares. So Everyone from a vocate, you know, from someone in the transitional diaconate to the priesthood to the bishop will have been a transitional deacon at some point in their ministry. Um, so, uh, you know, the idea of being a deacon is that you bring the needs of the world to the church. So the deacon is serving in sort of an outward facing function. Obviously, deacons have liturgical responsibilities as well, but it's sort of this really community-based idea of service um, and serving the world as well as the parish itself. Yeah, so both Philip and I are transitional deacons right now. In the Episcopal Church, you have to be a transitional deacon for six months before you can be ordained to the priesthood. And so actually, I will be ordained in like a week and a half to the priesthood. And Philip, yeah, <laughs> super exciting. And then Philip, not too long after that, in January, you want to jump in? Well, Lord willing, one, one must always say no, uh, no official date yet. We're working on that. But such is life in, in COVID tide. Since you've been ordained, you know, I know this has not been in any way what a normal first you know, couple months of being ordained looks like. But man, I'm wondering where you've experienced something unexpected or where you found some joy. This might invert your, your question a little bit, but one of the things that I found as an unexpected joy was just how well my ecumenical and Baptist and Methodist and Duke formation prepared me for a moment when what is typically primary in our ecclesial life in the Episcopal Church, i.e. the sacraments, the Eucharist, in a, in a moment when that's not present or not available to us, well, as ministers, we're ministers of both word and sacrament. And boy, I was real ready to bring the word, I guess. And I've been delighted how, how my, my own parish and how I myself have found scriptures speaking to, to our precise moment, to our precise situation. Like We are so well resourced for wilderness and fast moments. We're so well resourced for moments of bewilder bewilderment and disorientation. And I've, and I've found, I've just found that those resources really speak. I found that the word speaks in this moment. And some of my own background kind of shaped me to look for that. But I've also found that, that the people I'm interacting with at St. Titus have, have been eager to hear the word speak to them as well. And so even though there's a lot of sadness around being separated from each other, 
being separated from the sacraments, being separated from the Eucharist. There's been, I think, a lot of interest and growth in, in coming together around scripture and prayer. Not that there isn't a, a gaping hole in our community, and especially because I started at such a strange time. There are so many things that I can't see because I haven't even met, you know, half of my parish in person, let alone on Zoom yet. But it's been, I think it's been a joy. I don't think that's overstating it to uh, find our own story in, in the story of scripture. And we'll continue to do that. I mean, Advent is, is yet another um, perfect moment to find our own, send our own situation of longing and, um, and angst written into the story that we're brought, we're brought up into. So one of the things that I think people who know me well will not be surprised by is that I, I'm a really big fan of sort of big picture sort of strategy thinking. Um, and one of the, one of the sort of unexpected joys of this time for me has actually been serving at Chapel of the Cross specifically, which is, is a bigger parish. So it's been, it's been really great fun to come on as part of a larger clergy team in a role that just requires a bit more sort of strategy and sort of thinking through of, I, I say longer term goals, but really like sort of goals around, well, how are we doing Christmas, you know, in a way that really is going to reach people? How are we um, making this form of direct service to the community happen? Um, how are we making formation right now as accessible to as many people as possible. And it's been really, really lovely to be able to sort of take part in those strategic conversations. Um, a great example of this is we, we, for All Souls, the Feast of All Souls, we did an online service, which we sort of recorded in advance. And it took a lot of work to put together because we didn't sort of go straight through the service when we were recording it. But when it was put together, it was absolutely stunning. And it was something that you actually couldn't do in person in one go. And it really allowed people to grieve and lament and have sort of space for darkness and stillness that evening when we premiered it. And people really, really responded to that. And so I'm, I've been really excited by the opportunities that the church has to to reimagine how we grieve, lament, how we worship, how we form each other as disciples of Christ. So yeah, so I've been really excited by that strategic work that's happening. That's great. What, what I'm hearing in both of your answers is that one of the best definitions of ministry that I've ever come across and heard is that it's making space. And what I'm hearing in both of your stories and in where you're finding joy is a kind of an unexpected space and the the shift from being a space that's solely focused on the table and those elements to a space that you're able to hold that uh, is more maybe more teaching uh philip you know that is maybe more expounding and digging in and scratching beneath the surface of of the word and opening it up for folks like that's new and a lot of Episcopal churches that might be really new. And Amanda, for you too, that I'm hearing of, of, yeah, of creating this digital space for folks and it 
having an, an even possibly even greater effect than what a typical, you know, all souls service may have looked like at Chapel of the Cross. And I think that's really beautiful um, of the space that y'all are making. Thank you for that. So I'm up next. Uh, this is very exciting. Uh, so, okay, let's see. The question is, um, what's something life-giving or grounding for you right now? Because like everything's really complicated and everyone's just sort of like, <gasps> you know, not us, obviously. We keep our zen all the time. So what is it that enables you to have that unshakable peace that passes all understanding? I had to look at what I wrote down because um, I keep thinking I keep thinking of more things, actually. Um one thing that I've I've loved about this last, I mean, I even forget how long we've been doing this since March, since April, a lot of time at home. And that just has meant that I've spent a ton of time with Erin, my wife, and um, she's a PhD student. So she's working from home and we have, we just have really flexible schedules. So we, we go on a lot of walks. I think we've been averaging like four or five miles a day for the last six months, which is kind of crazy. We just have a lot of time together and she's really funny. And I, I don't, I, this would have been a very different experience without, without having that just really friendship built in at home. I, we've both had similar intuitions um, at different moments, like <laughs> how we're going to get through this. I remember, I think, I think like September rolled around and I just went to Trader Joe's and I bought everything that had pumpkin or fall in the name. And it, we, I think we both had that same intuition. Like we're, we're just going to go hard on the seasons, even if it's 90 degrees outside, like give me that maple, apple, caramel, crunch granola. Like I just need that right now. For the first time ever, we got our Christmas tree before Thanksgiving. So we called it a Christ the King tree and now it's an Advent tree. We're, we're leaning really hard into the seasons. So our house smells like, you know, some like Scandinavian chalet um, with all the fir and pine and, and spruce scents. So I think for me, one of the things that's really been grounding, um, I, I'm someone who lives alone. So it's just me and my cat, which is great. Um, I love having my cat, that's really great. But I think finding sort of a really good morning routine has been grounding for me. I mean, it's a, it's a time when I spend so much time online that I really, really need some time in the day, even on really, really busy work days when I am not on the computer at all. When I sort of take that time to work out, get tea, you know, do a few sort of household chores, but make it very intentionally not about computer work and having just creating that space as we've sort of talked about creating space before it has been essential um, for sanity and I will I'll also agree with Philip that leaning into the seasons has been really important because it reminds me that well time sometimes feels like just sort of an amorphous blob um, actually we still have structure and we still have rituals that we really, really can tap into. And I think that's some of the value of them is that we can reach for these rituals, these prayers, these moments of joy and celebration, even when things get really hard. So speaking of seasons and, and leaning into them, we're in Advent right now. Uh, are, are there some practices that y'all are taking on? Is there, is there something that you're, that you're doing or being or, or, or trying to live into uh, more intentionally during this time? what we've been doing at least since yesterday we got these advent calendars from this this french jam company called bon maman 
you, you can get their like strawberry preserves and stuff in the store but they made this advent calendar with a little jam pot for each day and so that's been part of my advent rituals to wake up and put my toast in the toaster and and open up and see what sort of fancy jam i'm getting yet another yet another seasonal thing for me that doesn't really have a, a kind of spiritual or sacred tie-in but i do i do have another another thing that that i decided to sort of take on one thing that i found to be both important and another source of life-giving joy during the pandemic is just staying connected with people maybe that i hadn't talked to in a while so i sent a lot of emails you know to to folks i hadn't spoken to in forever just for for various reasons and so what I'm trying to do during Advent is, is just write, write a card, write a, a letter um, to different folks from church life, from, you know, previous jobs, just various things as a way of just thinking about somebody else, at least for a little while um, during each day. But those are, those are my, my sacred and profane Advent practices, I guess. Well, and to be fair to you, Philip, you did rename the Christ the King tree as an Advent tree and, you know, left that up. So that you can always keep that in your, you know, quiver too. You know, Whole Foods, which is where we bought it, technically called it a holiday tree. So I feel like it was a fill in the blank thing anyway. That's just the war on Advent. Don't don't give them credit for that. Hey, there is no room this year for Advent police. Like 2020 is not the year for Advent police. Seriously, do not steal my hope. If I find it in jam, so be it. Don't, don't take that from me. <laughs> yeah, nope. Even even my seminary friends who are like all about the Advent policing normally, right? Like, you know, don't don't rush Christmas are like, well, to hell with it. Like we, we are just Christmas tree. We're doing all the things because 2020, man. So my uh, my Advent practice is actually pretty similar to Phillips. So I have a an advent calendar from Fortnum and Mason, the uh, British tea company or department store slash glorious space of goodness that also is very famous for making teas. And so there is a tea bag for every day leading up to Christmas, which is really awesome. So I can just put on hot water in the morning and I have a new tea to try. So I'm, I'm like keeping all the tags from the end of it in a bowl so that at the end I can sort of see how many teas I had and which ones I liked. Um, so it's a great way to for me to sort of try something new and be really intentional about a part of my morning ritual that sometimes sort of gets harried in the midst of other sort of household chores and everything. So my slightly less, slightly less secular practice actually really started yesterday when I was, I was writing out ember cards and Christmas cards with my sort of ordination upcoming. I'm doing just like a double mailing to get it out to everyone on my list. Um, and one of the things that I found, it was exhausting like my hand is still cramped from it but I ended up sort of writing a personal note on almost every card that I sent just as a way of saying hey I we haven't talked in a while like you know we know each other from this these are the ways that I'm really grateful for you your friendship or mentorship or you know sort of in whatever um, capacity I know these people and so it was a really great moment of intentionality and something that you know I have to get these cards out so I can't really spread them out over Advent but something that I'm actually hoping to continue over the season is reconnecting with folks. So a little bit similar to what Philip is doing. And uh, just again, uh, real quick, Amanda, for the um, <clears throat> for the listeners, what was the name of that tea company again? Fortnum and Mason. For the listeners. Caleb, yeah, thank Caleb's you. Caleb's writing it down right now. 
<laughs> it's like adult advent calendars, right? You know, like in, like my kids have like the chocolate, you know, the little chocolate ones, you know, you open a door and you get the chocolate. Yeah, these are these are much more adulting. I mean, I'll take the chocolate one too, you know, there's never lose your inner child. Right? Let's just all have like three advent calendars, right? Like I actually have two. I haven't, I didn't mention the other one, but it's a little like, it's a Narnia advent calendar. So you don't get anything from it, but you like open it up and there's a new illustration of a character from the Narnia series every day. Is it in the shape of a wardrobe? A wardrobe, it I was is, just gonna yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. And like, you, do you have that one? Have you seen it? No, but that sounds amazing. It's yeah. so cool. I don't Lucky think guess. they make them anymore, but last Christmas, my mom tracked down one on eBay for me and like, cause that was, this is my child. This is what I had over childhood. That's cool. Um, and oh, so many feels, so many feels. Philip and Amanda, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks for checking in and for letting folks know who you are and, and, and what it is that you're doing and uh, the work that you're doing in, in this diocese. And thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your, your stories too and the way that you have have shared you know not just like your calling but but how you got here and thank you for for the, practicing that vulnerability with us and, and with everyone who's listening thanks for having us and i i should just commend you for a, a great podcast name seriously the best podcast name but yeah it's a joy to be with you all thank you so much Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, that's it for And Also With Y'all. And Also With Y'all is a podcast uh, produced by the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina for young adults in the Diocese of North Carolina or anywhere that you may happen to be listening. We also have the Yeah, Y-E-A-H app that you can download in the uh, iTunes or in Google Play Store, anywhere you get your, you, you download your apps, you can find that there. And again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.